Hello, and welcome to Editor's Pick, a War Elephant podcast, episode five. I have my regular co-host, Christine, with me. And I also have a very special guest, I believe our first sheepdog, Matthias, um, from the War Elephant. So, Matthias, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, hello, everyone. Okay. Uh, I am Matthias Holzfehler. I was born in... Uh, in Brandenburg in, in Germany, uh, and I was for a time before um, moving to the United States, I was a, uh, a Stabsunteroffizier in the Deutsches here, uh, which to put it uh, into approximate translation is like a, a, staff, a staff sergeant in the, uh, in the uh, American military. <laughs> American military, gosh. Um, I, I discovered uh, American conservatism and uh, libertarianism while I was in Afghanistan uh, and uh, I took a liking to the ideologies and I decided I was going to look into moving to the United States um, after after well the 2000s and the 2010s in Germany were politically uh, rocky in comparison to the uh, the way that the United States was so I, I pulled myself over, and then I moved my uh, my lovely my lovely significant other Ellie over to the United States, and I've been here ever since. I joined up with the War Elephant a few years ago, and uh, they took me on as a sheepdog immediately, uh, right out of the gate, because of my uh, my experience with uh, the website and with uh, some ne'er do wells on Quora, and uh, I, ever since I've been working in the security team. Now, I don't think we've mentioned before what sheepdogs do at War Elephant. Could you explain that for us, Matthias? Uh, so the sheepdog is the executive level of uh, security uh, in the War Elephant. Basically, what they do is they, they manage uh, the website, uh, Quora, that is the space on the website, and all of our uh, subsidiary uh, spaces on the internet. Uh, make sure that there's no dangers to the, the users, no dangers to the contributors especially. Uh, and they basically just make sure that the that the, the organization is safe from any inside or outside threats. Thank you. So today we have a very appropriate topic. Um, we're going to talk about censorship, particularly of the New York Post story concerning Hunter Biden. Uh, Christine alerted me that uh, Hunter Biden's business partner has has declared that he's giving testimony, basically confirming what the New York Post story was saying. And the reason this is a story about censorship is because Twitter initially blocked all posting, even in private messaging, of the link to the story. And it was a, a very obvious use of power. And I, I think we should get into the question of why I think all three of us would say it's a, an abuse of power. I think we all agree that it is a use of power and that there are circumstances in which Twitter doing such a thing could be considered a legitimate use of power. I think all of us would agree that posting pornography without consent of the people in it uh, posting anything underage without the cons well, just anything mm -hmm. underage, that Twitter would be 
within its rights and we would support Twitter in taking down those links and banning the people who did such a thing. So uh, Matthias, Matthias, could you tell us why you would say this is an abuse of power or censorship? Effectively, it's it, it's kind of a, it's it's like censoring. A, well, it is censoring people with whom uh, the the corporation disagrees. And while while they they're perfectly within their rights to operate the platform, however they they choose, I I would argue that you're going out of your way to target one side over the other. When we see this pattern that they've been forming since uh, I want to say 2014 or 2015 where they just relentlessly hammer one side over the other, and it's not showing a, a balanced perspective at all. Um, now, well, I'd like to bring up the, the Steele dossier, which came up, was it before or after the election? It was before. Uh, so, so it's almost an analogous situation with the exception that it's, um, uh, it, was, it was significantly before, you know, the last week before mm -hmm. official voting starts, although, um, at my, my work in a nursing facility, they just distributed and helped the residents to fill out ballots. So there's a lot of people, including members of my family, who have already voted through distance learning. So this is going to have a different impact than the Steele dossier. But I would argue that the Steele dossier had as much credibility as the initial New York Post story, which I think has been substantiated better now but everything we've learned about the Steele dossier since it was released has decreased its credibility. So I, I will clarify, the dossier was written from June until December of 2016. So it wasn't released in full to the public until 2017. And that was on Buzzfeed news on January 10th of 2017, following the election. And, and the Steele dossier, I think we could fairly say is the start of the campaign that led to president Trump's impeachment. Yes. Uh, now, of course, the impeachment was actually about, um, perhaps not ironically, Hunter Biden's involvement in Burisma and President Trump's um, request that the, how oh, was it? I, I'm sorry, I forget the country. Is it Hungar Hungary or? Wh which country was? Ukraine. Oh, Burisma the Ukraine. Was operating sorry, in Ukraine. Ukraine. So President Trump's requesting that the Ukraine government uh, investigate Burisma, specifically mentioning Hunter Biden. And um, but the the ties of the the Mueller Russia investigation um, definitely go back to the Steele dossier and a very coordinated effort on behalf of the media and um, members of the FBI and other civil officials who either seriously or for political reasons, chose to pursue an investigation that I think has consistently shown to be less meritorious than the claims and certainly the attempted impeachment seem to merit. If we want to, if we want to make it a given, uh, right, that the that the the website uh, has the opportunity, the means, and uh, the justification to act however they wish on the website because they own the platform, they could at least make an effort to be uh, gratuitous equally between both sides with their moderation decisions. So uh, choosing to, to moderate the, the New York Post uh, 
uh, scandal as opposed to uh, as opposed to the 2016 uh, Trump Russia scandal and uh, letting one get away with uh, well an infinite number of abusive posts on the on their website while turning a blind eye to the cur- uh, to, to the current uh, censorship issue is blatantly hypocrisy and I, w- I would say it's an abuse of their own uh, self morality they're not holding themselves to their own standards I, I think I think one of the keys of this case uh, is is that they are saying that they have a duty to protect people from dangerous speech. That is the argument that they are making. There's absolutely no such thing as dangerous speech uh, whatsoever. Speech, speech is an inactionable item which everyone has an inalienable right to. You, 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 you cannot claim that speech is by any means inherently dangerous, no matter what the speech is. When you have a statement of intent that is reasonably backed up by force, that is when uh, in the West, at least, we consider it uh, something which you can take action against. But uh, someone lying about someone else uh, in the perception of the platform, not even uh, something that has been uh, without a doubt proven to be false, just within the perception of the political platform of the uh, of the website. That is not something that I, I would I would consider to be a, a dangerous speech. It's simply speech that they disagree with. I would I would personally go further and say it's not even just speech they disagree with. It's speech they know to be potentially damaging to a political cause that we know vast majorities of the employees of these countries, uh, these companies are violently opposed to. So it is an explicitly political action during a major political campaign. One of the the things that really surprises me and worries me is um, lately I've been seeing fact checks on political campaign ads. And those fact checks have had, you have to click through a disclaimer now to see the campaign ads. And they've said things like, this campaign ad was misleading because it didn't include the opposition's viewpoint like what absolutely ridiculous and a lot of the uh, a lot of the fact checks are um, blatant gotcha moments where they point to a single uh, word or or phrase and uh, they attack that while ignoring it's basically um basically where they attack what they choose to uh, to make the point of the of the ad that they're attacking so they they, they basically strawman the entire thing by attacking one word or phrase. Um, when in in general, the uh, the overall statement of what they are attacking is factual. It's just maybe a number was wrong or maybe a word was used with a definition that has a, or rather with a, a connotation that uh, could be taken in several different ways and they choose to take it in the absolute worst way. Uh, and this has been happening for years and it's just now that uh, you're seeing it on like Twitter posts which is just a pe- I, I would say it I would say it's petty it's it's almost like a, it's almost like a kindergartner throwing insults around 
It would be petty, except that in addition to blocking or it's not really blocking, it's increasing inconvenience and increasing the the negative uh, noise that you have to get through to to consume uh, right-leaning content. They have added a nuisance filter to um, WinRed, which is the conservative donation platform that rivals the uh, the much longer standing ActBlue um, donation platform. Uh, ActBlue raises uh, a truly enormous amount of money in small donations because it's very easy. You just click and they have very strong technical support for connecting all campaigns to the big central ActBlue pot. And um, the Republican Party and the conservative side of the political aisle in America have finally found a competitor to act blue in WinRed. It's still not nearly as big because it's brand new uh, as of last year, but it has been heavily promoted and it's very effective. It's very easy to donate small amounts of money to the political cause you care about. And adding a nuisance filter to that is, it's very hard to measure, but let's talk about like, the ninety-nine cent, um, uh, the ninety-nine cent sales tactic. So you always see something for four ninety-nine instead of five dollars. That's because that one cent makes an enormous psychological difference to consumers. Uh, and it's measurable in large aggregate, which is where it really matters when you're trying to make margin and trying to, you know, cut costs and so forth. It makes a difference. These tiny little apps. Adding an extra click may not seem important to a really dedicated conservative or a really dedicated liberal, but to the moderate who's just sort of like, oh, that was a cool ad by Kim Klasik on YouTube. I might want to donate to her campaign. If you have to have an extra click, that might make them think, oh, well, maybe I want that coffee instead. I don't really feel that connected to a Baltimore politician. Why should I give money to that person? That click is a psychological tactic to cost the other political side money. It is not. Especially if it's only applied to one side. Exactly. There is no reporting on actually having this nuisance tactic. With a warning on it. It's a major um it's a major portion of human psychology and uh in fact we we use it in uh tactics and, and well overall strategy uh all the time. Uh you know, when you're when say you're being chased by someone, you want to put as many small obstacles in the way as you can on their way to get to, to reach you. And it's much the same with uh, reaching a website that you don't want people to reach to see, uh, or say an, an army is uh, pursuing you. As, as, as many obstacles as you can put in their way as possible, the more likely it is that the person in charge of making those decisions, or in this case, the brain of the person trying to access the website, the more likely they are to decide this isn't really worth my time i'm going to back off uh and go pursue something that's a lot easier uh, an easier target basically and um on top of that engagement uh when they look at the the little um the little pop-up that uh comes up on their screen and it says all of these things negative about uh about what they're trying to access it just implies a lot of extra research that they don't want to get into that uh the average the average uh voter does not look into with the time so you get a, a little advertisement on your screen that says well this statement is incorrect see this and this and this and this that implies a lot more mental work that they have to do 
uh, that they would not have had to do had they just had access to the the page that they were attempting to access in the first place. And it overloads uh, the, the part of the brain that is just saying, hey, I, all I wanted to do was uh, to see this uh, nice campaign ad that I got a, a, a little notification for on, on, my, uh, on my YouTube. I didn't want to get all of this extra baggage. Uh, I guess I'll just click away. Uh, it's not worth my time. And uh, now and we're... Oh, sorry, Matthias. It's not worth my time, and it's not worth the potential argument that I'll get into if I, uh, if I do click the button and get into it. Because now there's conflict, and human beings inherently seek to avoid conflict unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, now, and now it's not just campaign ads. It's the actual news that's being suppressed. I mean, Facebook and Twitter sought to suppress this breaking news about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and corruption. And now we've got we've got Bobolinsky confirming it. And they're going Bobolinsky's going before the Senate Judiciary Committee tomorrow. Uh, they've subpoenaed the Judiciary Committee has also subpoenaed both Twitter and Facebook CEOs, Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. And this is clearly real news, even though the Biden campaign is saying it's Russian disinformation, which puzzles me a great deal. They, they aren't denying the laptop. They aren't denying the pictures on the laptop. They're denying specifically the emails that connect Biden to the corruption. They're saying only those are, are fake news. And uh, the 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 more you disconnect the the voters, uh, well, the public at large, not even just the voters, because uh, the people around the people who who are voting, uh, who may not necessarily participate in the election, have a huge impact on the people that they uh, that they talk with. So, yeah. like, uh, if you ha if you're a person who is uh, considering voting, and everyone around you uh, has a negative opinion about one candidate. Uh, you can't come out and say, hey, I'm going to vote for this candidate because if you do, you have an issue on your hands with the people surrounding you, even if you're sure that they're not going to vote. Um, the more you disconnect the uh, the people participating in the election and the people around them from this story, the more likely it is uh, that the, the outcome is going to look more positive for your party. And when it does, and that party gets in power, now you have the ability to finish off the scandal that uh, that was giving you an issue in the first place because your people are in power now. Once, If Biden gets into power and we have a, a Democratic Senate and a, a Democratic House, and uh, and even let's say they they manage to uh, they manage to somehow stop the the uh, Coney Barrett um, nomination from actually achieving a, a position on the court. Once you have all of these uh, all of these pieces set in the game, the last move is to sweep the scandal under the rug. So they know that if there's no mass outrage about the scandal, then they can just push it out of the realm of public viewership, and the scandal just disappears. It'll come back up in five years when someone's discussing uh, 2020 in a summary, and that's it. And and if they can control the media, then they can silence that. I mean, that's a very powerful tool. And there are many ways to do that. Uh, certainly, there's been talk on the left, you know, that about needs to shut down right-wing media, how dangerous talk radio is, how dangerous conservative voices on YouTube are how dangerous having Breitbart is. Uh, and 
I know even among some of our own more elephant people, we if we share a Breitbart article, they're like, oh, I don't like to touch Breitbart. And, and we say, well, we take things article by article. You know, and, and I'm going to, I'll say right here for people not familiar with what War Elephant publishes, we also publish things from Salon and Vox from time to time. We really take things article by article. Um, but if you remember back several years ago, Breitbart lost almost all of their advertising revenue because of a Sleeping Giants campaign to shut down advertising from Google, which controls nearly all of the advertising on the internet. And in 2018, the Patreon purge pushed nearly all the, the most conservative voices off multiple platforms online. And it started out with people who pretty much nobody wanted to defend. And it moved to some fairly mainstream voices. This is an issue that you see often with, uh, with media monopolies. Um, you, the, the most common form that you're going to see is going to be uh, government ownership of the monopoly of the media where uh, they attack a group of people that are an outlier that no one is going to defend. Uh, and once they've pruned them, they choose another outlier that no one's going to defend. And eventually it snowballs into people that people don't want to defend, but that are defensible. And then it moves to people who... Uh, uh, who everyone is neutral about so there's no active defense and then it moves on to people that they previously would have defended but now they can't because it's gone too far and there's no way of stopping the media machine and this is uh this is typically seen in governments but now we're seeing it uh in large corporations in the united states uh which is well someone made a point recently that when it comes to government the power that large corporations have over the public is a governing power. It is not official, but it is efficacious. They are setting policy. They are very much impacting the way we conduct our daily lives. Um, and I, I wanted to mention the specific sequence. So when Matthias was talking about, you start with the people that no one wants to defend. So they deplatformed Alex Jones and Milo Yiannopoulos. And both of those men were popular, but they, they were popular for being naughty, for doing things that were indefensible, but made you sort of laugh and, and made you think. And they'd, they'd actually, there had been platforming before that of extremely uh, dangerous groups. The very first test group were... Uh, Stormfront. Stormfront, Stormfront was the first test group. And Cloudfair um, completely pulled their ability to have a website. That's right. They, they literally took away the, the possibility of having a website. And, and, and I am in no way, shape, or form defending Stormfront, the organization. We're and, just documenting. We're, do, we're documenting what has happened here. That it's gone from Stormfront to Alex Neil Jones and Alex Neil. Jones. And then it moved on to... Lauren Southern and Sargon of Akkad were the next step because those are yes. still two relatively mainstream people. They flirted with, um, I think it's fair to say they definitely flirted with members of the alt-right. but Lauren they were both, Southern, definitely. Right. But they but, were both careful not to step completely over the line. They were both but, still within the mainstream. But it's important to acknowledge um, on the on the Sargon of Akkad, for people who don't know, Sargon of Akkad is a... Uh, a uh, a YouTuber and streamer and uh, previously a politician in the United Kingdom named Carl Benjamin. 
he was uh he's typically what we would consider in the united states to be uh centrist ish uh maybe leaning a little bit to the left in his 2014 platform maybe mm -hmm. leaning a little bit to the right in his 2016 platform so he, he was by no means a member of any conservative uh, uh mainstream movement it was more along the lines of a of a slightly left leaning uh uh classical liberal uh platform and i mean uh, i'd say he's more of a a populist um well, now he's done a lot of thinking. Now he is, but now he is a little bit more populist than he used to be. But uh, when it started out, when the when the censorship issues started out, uh, he was uh, he was left of the uh, the United Kingdom Conservative Party and right of the United yeah. Kingdom Labour Party. So I would agree would, with that. He he would be about a, where our a little bit left actually of where a lot of uh, the the democratic uh, issues in the United States would be. Uh, and a little bit to the right of uh, uh, where a lot of the democratic uh, issues would be, because European politics are a little bit different from uh, American politics. But um, he was by no means a, a, a typical conservative. He he was more along the lines of uh, of a slightly left leaning uh, classical liberal, where it was uh, I don't like these things, but you have the right to do them, so I'm not going to interfere with them. Was his uh, was his main viewpoint on things, and he actually got pushed further towards our side of of the line because he was routinely censored and uh just a, a few months ago uh a year maybe they they completely killed his youtube account um he, he no longer gets views on his primary youtube account because uh there's no ad revenue and it doesn't show up in recommended it doesn't uh, show up on watch laters you can even select one of his videos uh on your screen and be watching it and it won't show up in the recommendeds on the side even though you're currently watching his content he's just completely been killed so it's not just uh it's not just conservatives that they're killing they're also pruning their own bush or uh, rather they're pruning the bush of people who would typically be considered by conservatives to be on their side of the aisle and and this is something we've seen as editors actually um on the social media platforms, whenever we address censorship, the topic, our posts go nowhere. We will get a quarter to a tenth of the ordinary viewership. Uh, I find it really impossible to believe people are that disinterested in censorship. Censorship is one of the hot button issues of uh, of this year and a few years prior. There's absolutely no way. There's no interest whatsoever in the topic. Well, I wanted to move on to the other main topic, um, and that's Section 230. So this is a specific uh, act from 1996, which was uh, stating that no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So fundamentally, this was a way to decrease regulations so that someone could provide a service to a large number of people without being responsible for necessarily policing the people who are using the service. So a very basic example, if you are Twitter and someone tweets a threat at someone else, um, 
Twitter is not responsible for the threat. Now, Twitter may, for community reasons or personal preference reasons, choose to censor that, but you cannot sue Twitter because someone chooses to threaten someone else on Twitter because of Section 230. And that means that what we have come to call the platform versus publisher divide has come to be enshrined in internet regulatory law. Uh, a platform is not responsible for the content that is hosted upon the platform. A and publisher is responsible and a publisher can be sued for libel, slander, or threats. And this was used to cover all internet discussion boards, all response boards, uh, forums on like whenever you went into the newspaper and had a comment section and you commented on it, it covered the liability for user comments on all of that. And, and it was meant to protect free speech online so that all the people providing opportunities for people to speak didn't end those opportunities. So, Matthias, I believe you had mentioned uh, when we were planning for this podcast that you had some and some thoughts about Section 230. And Section 230, either repealing or modifying it, is a very hotly debated issue in conservative circles because a lot of conservatives are friendly to the idea of a platform. What my argument currently is, and what I think a lot of conservatives is, is not being applied fairly. Um, they're acting as a publisher of conservative content where they control it and they, they throttle it or they add nuisance filters while they treat liberal users of the platform as completely a platform. They may, they can post almost anything they want without any nuisance platform or filtering. Right. Well, the idea of, uh, of section 230 was for the, the moderation of, of uh, speech of free speech to be performed only in good faith so uh you you have the opportunity to to moderate your platform however you see fit uh it would only be a a section 230 action mm -hmm. if you managed that content uh in in good faith if you if you pruned out comments that are are objectively not not uh, first amendment uh, protected speech or rather free speech uh, the right to free speech protected so uh direct direct threats that have a reasonable backing uh or um you know criminal actions such as posting child pornography things like that um but it, it's extremely important that uh websites provide a uh, a reasonably fair platform for both sides of the aisle on any discussion. So you can't, you can't have a website that just decides that they prefer one side of an argument over the other and, uh, and kills the other side of the argument uh, for lack of a better term. Because when you have that, the, the people that use that website are going to either largely tip towards the side that they hear the most or the only people that you're going to attract to the website are the people who believe the arguments that that site is uh, is uh, promoting, uh, and you know we've seen uh, we've seen it in the numbers for the websites. It's not only bad for the right to free speech because it stifles uh, uh, both political and social commentary. Uh, it basically makes it incredibly incredibly uh, problematic for people in the information era uh, to to spread information, which is the entire point of the information era. Um, but 
it also hurts the website that is doing the platforming because they kill their own numbers. Uh, we saw it with Twitter uh, after 2016, and uh, we saw it. With, we've been seeing it with YouTube over the past few years. So I would I would argue that it's not only uh, in the worst interest for free speech to to treat uh, uh, treat uh, speakers unfairly, but it's also in the worst interest of the websites themselves, and therefore they should be uh, they should be platforms and not publishers. I agree. I think the maintaining the platform is extremely important. And of course, one thing that we hear a lot is, uh, well, they're private companies, you can do whatever you want. But really, these are the public greens. This is the public commons, the means of which people get together and express their ideas. And it's clear that Section 230 was meant to protect the public commons. And it needs amending to do so. And I think that uh, an argument that I think is sensible, I mean, there's several arguments against amending or abolishing Section 230 that I think are sensible from a conservative perspective. Uh, one, of course, is that the government stepping in gives it more power. And especially if, um, you know, there's a, a blue landslide and the, the Democrats take control of the Senate and the presidency and maintain control of the House, that will be a, a tool that they can use themselves. And I think that's very worth thinking about. I think too much political thought is focused on the here and now. I think we should stop um, acting like our side will always be in power. We should we think about the consequences of what happens when the people who we disagree with are in power, because they will always have their turn. That's mm -hmm. the way our system's set up. Um, and the other argument is that repealing it means that we have to create our own and the, the, the tech companies are so monopolistic and the regulatory environment favors them so much that any attempt to create our own public greens will end up in failure. And I will say that is a very good argument because I have joined many of the alternatives to Twitter to, to test it out. Um, I, I joined Parler. I joined um, Curious Cat. I've joined, I don't remember if I joined Gab. I think I did. I joined Think Progress. I, I tried Gab. I think it I tried it and I was just long. like, this is terrible. And honestly, I feel the same way about Parler. I don't think it's a very well put together platform compared to what Twitter is now. Twitter is an extremely powerful, polished, and fun platform to use. Parler is not. And so... There are things I actually really like about Parler that I think yeah, are, are improvements on there, Twitter. But, but it's, it's, it's a not process. there yet. It's a process. And... A large part of the issue about uh, the the alternative websites being non-viable for use uh, on our side, uh, I'll, I'll say it uh, for Walter's sake, why using the alternative websites is not very cash money of us is because uh, they don't get a fair shake uh, at, at living as a platform. Um, so typically, uh, 
conservatives will join the platform, uh, conservatives and libertarians, uh, basically anyone on the right will join the platform and make it their own. Um, and it'll, it'll have a little bit of a gla uh, gla gra grassroots, grassroots beginning. Um, and the people there will make it into their own, their own sort of community. And then, uh, uh word will catch on, on the main platform like YouTube, um, or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and uh, and suddenly there's an influx of people, and it has to be updated to match the influx of people. And when it becomes public like that, uh, the left, uh, not just the left, but uh, the people who who follow the that type of dogma, uh, will also seep in, and they will shut it down, uh, or they'll attempt to shut it down, or they'll bog it down, in. Uh, just all manner of of uh, of hardship, uh, doxing, uh, attacking it uh, via cyber attacks, uh, trolling, the flooding things with spam, harassment of anyone who goes on the platform and attempts to use it seriously. Uh, and honestly, Matthias, don't forget bringing economic pressure to bear through campaigns like the ones that they bring with they brought against subscribe star and strike to get finances cut off right uh, they'll uh, essentially they i don't want to use the word abuse they will uh, make a threat to to vote with their wallet and uh, the thing is that these companies cannot necessarily gauge uh, whether the people who are threatening not to use their services or to bring economic hardship upon their services are not the the target group so they're having trouble uh having trouble keeping up with whether or not they are performing well uh, economically uh in in the future they have a good economic future and so they end up panicking um and it's not only the companies but the the users of the platforms end up panicking and they either leave or they just never use the platform uh and in the end, it ends up with uh, you end up with something like Parler, where uh, it's you know it's in the public knowledge that it exists, but it's just not taken off like people would want it to. Uh, in the end, the attempt to make a platform for the other side of the aisle just fizzles out of existence. Now, there's a couple of things that have been done uh, introduced in the Senate already. First of all, uh, Trump did a President Trump issued an executive order on May 28th for preventing online censorship. But that really has no real legal teeth. Um, it has no, they don't have a real good enforcement basis for it. So even though the Senate Judiciary Committee is bringing people forward, there's been no lawsuits brought based on that executive order and no real action against the big tech companies for violations of that executive order. Now, Senators Hawley, Rubio, and Braun and Tom Carton introduced the Limiting Section 230 Immunity to Good Samaritans Act, which is Senate Bill 3983, and we'll link that in the show notes, allowing U.S. citizens to sue big tech companies for se selective censorship of political speech that's sitting in the Senate right now. Um, that's one option. But, of course, you would have to have the money to take the big tech to a lawsuit, good luck. Uh, and secondly, another approach uh, has been approached by uh, Senators Roger Wicker, 
Marsha Blackburn, and Lindsey Graham. And they introduced the Online Freedom and Viewpoint Diversity Act. And I actually really like this. This was introduced in September, and this modifies and updates Section 230. And this is Senate Bill 4534. We'll also have this linked. And what this does is it clarifies well, when Section 230's liability protections apply. So that instances where online platforms choose to restrict access to certain types of conflict, uh, content. And it conditions the content moderation liability shield to an objective reasonableness standard. So they're saying that in order to be protected from liability, they can only restrict access to content on the platform where they have an objectively reasonable belief the content falls within a certain specified category. And instead of protecting otherwise objectionable under 230, they're going to replace it with concrete terms, like they can remove content protecting terrorism or promoting terrorism and determine to be uh, things like promoting self-harm so that the tech companies can't just willy-nilly remove things. They have to fall into spe specified categories and be very specific. And I, I think that's actually a really good approach to remove the vagueness and, and less likely to be abused by politicians on either side. Right. We have to be extremely careful when, uh, when handling uh, things of this nature in, uh, from a legal standpoint, because you will, get, uh, you will get the people that we mentioned uh, before, the people who uh, cry out, well, it's their platform, uh, and they can do with it whatever they wish. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hesitant to throw backing behind uh, any form of le legislation. Uh, I, I mean, the fact that uh, Section 230 even existed was uh, something that I, I, I hadn't paid heed to uh, until it became uh, uh, an issue that I, I uh, needed brought up to my attention, which was when I, when I did, uh, when I did become interested in free speech as a topic in the United States. Uh, so while I would, ha I would hesitate to approach, uh, approach this from a Senate standpoint, uh, I would agree that. There needs to be more done to protect the the individual users and the organization's ability uh, to to exercise freedom of speech on uh, on these on these uh, now public forums where it's it, it's it's not a matter of well this is our board and you have to follow our rules uh, otherwise we will erase your entire online existence uh, such as uh, it, what uh, major tech companies like Facebook and Twitter are capable of now where people say something on their platform and suddenly not only the account there is uh, is terminated, but uh, it seems that every account on every platform everywhere is suddenly terminated. I, I would agree that there needs to be more protections and uh, I would approach I would approach a Senate standpoint on, on this issue of uh, introducing new protections uh, with a grain of salt personally but I can see where it's coming from. Uh, and given enough convincing, I'm sure I would agree to it as well. And it may be that the ultimate solution to this problem, to protecting freedom of speech outside the government sphere, may require a constitutional amendment protecting 
private individual freedom of speech. Anything that goes through it, uh, honestly, uh, if it goes through the, the proper channels uh, and the constitutional amendment is introduced, uh, that uh, adds not an addendum, to, but uh, but shores up the the right to freedom of speech in the United States, and it, it's ratified. Uh, I, I can see that being something that I would also also support. Uh, honestly, I'm a, I'm a free speech extremist. Uh, in pretty much every definition of the word. So anything that goes further to protect uh, an individual's right to speak freely uh, and to share their uh, their interests with the world is something that I would throw my backing behind, uh, given uh, a close look into it. And for the record, I support the right, absolute right of freedom of speech of all people in the United States. And that includes the radical communist and activist, as well as people who think similarly to conservatives. Right, it's, uh, you'll every now and again, it's not often you'll come across someone who, uh, who is uh, extreme in the opposite direction where it's uh, censorship of, uh, of far left uh, ideals, where they're claiming that, hey, they're doing it to us, so we might as well do it in return uh, in the opposite direction. And I have to argue against them as well, because you're not, when you're censoring the opposition it sets a precedent and when you're censoring the opposition in opposition to censorship that they are performing against you not only are you following the precedent that they have set but you're also being a major hypocrite you need you need to take a stand on the idea of freedom of speech being an absolute right that no one has the ability to infringe upon and if they do infringe upon it there needs to be retaliation legal or otherwise so you you can't you can't let the, the left dictate to you that you should return their censorship to them when you come into power. All that's going to do is result in the government having more power when the next president or when the next, uh, the next uh, Congress majority comes into power. It's just a vicious cycle that you can't let happen. You... And, and in this case, you know, everything we've been talking about actually also revolves around a freedom of the press, not from government oppression, but from capital oppression. And, and it's interesting, we, we're kind of winding to the end here, but uh, people talk about government and corporate collusion and oligarchy. And honestly, how do we know that there aren't going to be forces in government controlling these large corporations, sending their messages to them? And saying what is and isn't acceptable if you allow companies to dictate what can and cannot be said in the public sphere. I'm a major supporter of right. So everyone, everyone knows the, the typical uh, um, uh, libertarian small government talking points. I'm a major supporter of uh, when it comes to the operations of the rights of citizens of the United States. I'm a major fan of uh, as much. Uh, transparency as as possible so as uh, i i would say that if there's an operation that the government is undertaking uh, that affects the rights of the the citizens of the united states to operate their inalienable rights it needs to be whistleblown uh, and i i i hesitate to use the word whistleblower because it's got such a negative connotation uh in this past decade but it needs to be whistleblown. You you can't you can't let uh, something like that 
continue and just like uh just like if you were in a corporation and uh we saw it what what was his name the google report where he released it um james damore James Demore, just like him. I was just about to mention him. You can't, you can't let a whistleblower like that be lambasted and ultimately crucified by a, a political movement. It, if something so important is going on, it it transcends something like uh, like uh, arbitrary measures of security. And I say that coming from the standpoint of someone who is an expert in uh, in security, both internet and physical. You. When you have something that is the fundamental construction of your society at stake, whether or not you have tier one security just does not matter. It's a matter of the survival of your, of your culture. So here at War Elephant, we are dedicated to preserving freedom, liberty, and virtue through our posts, through our podcasts. And you can join our community by going to Quora, which we'll have linked. We also have a Discord, which is extremely active. Later tonight, we're gonna to be doing a sort of watch along and conversation about the presidential debate that's happening. So you can feel free to join that. Um, we post content in large quantities every day on Quora. We try to post regular content on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and it'll all be similar to this. Um, we'll have differing perspectives um, as Matthias said he's much more of the libertarian perspective. Christine's much more of the classical liberal perspective, and I'm much more of a conservative perspective. We all tend to lean right, of course, but there are specific nuances that matter between our perspectives, and we are working to get uh, a liberal perspective. Now, if you are a liberal person and you wish to join us on a podcast, feel free to message us on Discord or on Quora. Um, we are looking for that kind of perspective and uh, our three guiding principles as war elephants are relaxed, research and respectful. So if you can abide by that, we will pledge to abide by that as well. And we'd be glad to further the cause of free speech uh, against censorship and hopefully making a better culture. Thank so, you for joining us today, Matthias. Yeah, I really want to extend a huge thanks to Matthias for his breadth of knowledge and articulation <laughs> of it. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, it's a bit out of left field talking on a stream like this, but I enjoyed myself. Well, excellent. So from the War Elephant Editor's Pick podcast to you, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week. Hit, hit like and subscribe. Oh, yes. Like, subscribe notifications and join our community.